This episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast was recorded remotely using the Zoom meeting software. I apologise for any sound issues. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Claire Jackson. Claire joined the University of South Australia as the Associate Head and Manager, Graduate Research Development in February 2017. This role provides leadership in the development, planning and implementation of initiatives to achieve the university's strategic research objectives in the specific area of research, education and training. Before arriving in Australia, Claire had established an international reputation in the field of PhD skills development with a particular focus on building collaborations within and beyond universities. This recognition stemmed from work embedding employability within the PhD structure at the University of Strathclyde, Glasgow in the UK. In a previous role, Claire led a university-wide project to create one of the world's first parallel academic qualifications designed to empower research students in their employability, a postgraduate certificate in research and professional development. Strathclyde's innovative approach received national recognition at the Times Higher Education Awards in 2015, and Claire has presented this to universities globally, including in the UK, Belgium, Cyprus, Ireland, the Netherlands, Hong Kong, Australia and New Zealand who have since adopted or adapted the model locally. Claire has co-authored papers for organisations including the UK Council for Graduate Research, the Higher Education Academy and Enterprise Educators UK and has researched in the area of employer perceptions of doctoral skills and the impact of PhD mentoring. Claire completed a part-time MBA in 2016 and is a qualified consultant and project manager. Thanks for joining me, Claire. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Sally. Okay, so my first question is around your experience working in the research and development field. It's been quite some time. So how did you end up in your career focusing on research and development? Well, that is a bit of an undulating story, I would say. Um, So yes, it has been a while. It's been a decade, actually. And I would say that it has been one of those accidental careers, but one that I'm very happy that's happened. Um, So really, uh, my own background, career background, is actually journalism which of course uh, lends itself very well to this area. There's a lot on communication. We need to talk the talk as well as walk the walk. Um, So a lot of the skills that I had developed during my own uh, degree uh, are transferable in nature. Um, So when I'd done, I'd done a brief stint in London trying out this journalism malarkey and quickly realised that the rat race definitely wasn't for me. And actually, journalism is a lot less creative than I had hoped for. So I toddled back up from London on the train to Glasgow, uh, which is where I did my um, undergraduate study. And I started to look at opportunities uh, through Tempin. Now, I'll, I'll kind of briefly skip over this, but a personal assistant Tempin role in HR, followed by one in IT services, led to another, uh, finally more linked to my own degree in communications and marketing. And it's there that I got involved in a project which was looking to set up an online platform for for postgraduate researchers that was aimed at signposting them to the the resources and uh, services that they would need during their research degree. And that's where I really started to learn about what a research degree looked like. I really had no experience at you know that early age of sort of 23, 24 of uh, research degrees. It's never something that I had considered up until that point. So that was a 12-month project where I really immersed myself working with candidates, working with supervisors and the support areas to develop this one-stop shop. And we launched. Um, so I'd really been able to immerse myself quite fully and just almost um, through serendipity I would say a job came up in sort of the graduate school equivalent at the University of Strathclyde around about the time I was finishing my contract. It was I would say a stretch opportunity for me at that stage but I went for it Um, I put blood sweat and tears into, into the application And I got the job um, and the title was Researcher Development Officer. So that was was my beginnings um, into researcher development. um, And it all just stemmed from there, really. 
Um, it's interesting you mentioned the word serendipity because, of course, only in the last couple of weeks we've um, lost uh, Professor John Crumboltz from Stanford, uh, who, of course, his theory of careers was planned happenstance and, uh, you know, he, he talked a lot about serendipity. So, you know, you've illustrated that. I, I would say my career is similar in that way. And a lot of people, they really had a look at their background, there is a lot of serendipity that comes into it. And I think it's really important to understand that and to actually take advantage of opportunities, having an open mind, which I think, you know, you've really developed to a high level and that you also had an, a knowledge of yourself of what mattered. And you mentioned the creativity, which I certainly know that about you. <laughs> so what it, so talking about with journalism that you were not, wasn't as creative as you'd hoped it would be, what do you enjoy about working in research and development? Oh, I mean, what I find fascinating about this area is really the intricacies of research degrees. And whilst, you know, a lot of great stuff and innovation happens in the undergrad space, I think when it comes up to research degrees, that steps up a notch. Um, when you look at uh, the training that we deliver and develop, um, the collaborative working that happens between all the myriad of stakeholders involved in research degrees um, you know PhD the PhD or, or research degrees is the grassroots of the research ecosystem in a university and without them in the engine room research doesn't happen um, so I'm just to, it's an exciting place to kind of work and now with this emerging focus um, that's sort of transpired in the last two to three years on in industry engagement and particularly impact with the uh, ERA exercise. There's just such a lot of opportunity and I think we're seeing a, a modern doctorate emerge again. So I think we've had the doctorate 2.0 but there's, there's, it's just continuous in, in terms of innovation and what a research degree is going to look like in 10 years I just think holds a lot of opportunity mm. so yeah really enjoy working with the various stakeholders um you know working with the candidates directly hearing from the supervisors the the other academics that sort of are around and about research degrees like portfolio coordinators as well as the senior leaders who have such a vested interest in research training and research degrees and of course you know there's more of a role to play from from our end users of research um, which means that you know you're really hearing the voices of a collective um, and I just genuinely love improving the way that that candidates can engage with their research engage with the university in a meaningful way and most importantly engage with themselves um, better through the, their research degree experience and I know we're going to come on to talk about my favorite uh, subject which is career development and employability but I think um I think it's yeah there's it's really just quite a, a novel and privileged position to have to have for people working in the graduate research space well I would have to agree with all of that yeah so, I, I was interested I mean I'm making that assumption Sally but I would be interested on your reflections in terms of what you enjoy yeah, I, I think fairly similar to you. And of course, I've worked in higher ed for a long time um, with a couple of little gaps here and there, but, you know, for seriously 30 years. So uh, for me, you know, I've watched lots of changes and I was interested when you talked about that evolution. And I think PhD is this and you think, yes, PhD was that then and now mm -hmm. it'll be something else and it will continue because that's how the world works and we're in a very dynamic world. Like it's always been changed and I hear that from people but the thing is the rapidity of it now it's it's quite mind-blowing and so we do really need to continue moving with the times but maintaining quality you know quality is really mm. important and so I think for me it's always been that I love the fact that education allows people to move you know stratas of you know they've got opportunities through that I've always looked at research. I've always been fascinated by research. And so I, I'm not necessarily wanting to do my research myself, but it's about that uh, being around that, I suppose. It's very exciting, isn't it? And, Absolutely. And, and such interesting people and such a diversity because, you know, of course we have so many international PhDs as well as domestic. And as you say, the more senior researchers, there's, it's just a fascinating area. And of course, redevelopment is my 
area I've worked in for such a long time that I really care deeply about that. And I feel that this has been a, a really neglected area and mm. got so much potential. And we really need the world to understand what value that, that researchers can bring to all sorts of sectors. And I mentioned to you before, I, I'm on a bit of a mission to stamp out the term real world, uh, that, that universities are real, a part of the real world. And that the, the things that are being done there are, are becoming more and more relevant, I think, across the board. Yes, I would agree. Mm. So on the flip side, we both know <laughs> that there are frustrations in all, in all work. So what are your frustrations in working in research and development? Look, I think I'm going to frame this from, from, from a positive place as much as I can. And, and that's reflecting on that creativity comment that I made earlier. Um, we have to innovate from a very lean base um, and by that I mean resources are limited but what that does allow you to do is, is and forces you to do is really think creatively and that mirrors often the research space that uh, projects that are working with limited and minimal resources perhaps that are only part funded we are having to do the same um, so what that means is we need to think about how we can work with candidates directly to understand their needs and perhaps even access the skills and expertise of our candidate um, uh, cohort or cohorts um, to, to partner in develop the development and delivery of activities in research degrees. I think we need to look at other universities um, how we can collaborate and partner there. Um, so, I th but I do think though that there is a source of frustration and that is that the limited resources that we have often mean it can be difficult to effectively service the heterogeneity of the HDR population. Now, um, by that, I, I mean looking at how we support part-time PhDs more effectively, or those that are distance, doing their PhD by distance in working in rural areas, those that are doing um, their PhD in, in many different formats and facets, and I think, um, or who come from different backgrounds and cultures and have a different route into the PhD. I think we've got a real blended cohort and it can be often difficult and tricky just with the skeleton staff base or with a limited budget that we have to really tailor things. Completely agree with that one and I, I would share those frustrations. We often come up with solutions within those limited resources. However, you just know that having so many ideas of how we could do it, you know, if you sometimes think if only I had had more resources, what we could do. And they're a complex group too. Uh, and undergraduates have been focused on for a very long time. So there are a lot more solutions there. And because it's such a, a blended cohort, it's really difficult to actually meet those needs. And, you know, you mentioned about the distance candidates. There's also, of course, people who have caring responsibilities and don't have that extra time to take advantage of, of other events that they could attend if they didn't have those other pressures in their life. So I think, yeah, they're very shared frustrations, I would think, across uh, the sector, really. You led the development of the postgraduate certificate in professional research development at Strathclyde University. What did that entail? So this was a project that stemmed from the realisation that we really weren't servicing the postgraduate research community effectively, and specifically our PhD cohort, which is the largest in terms of our HDR portfolio. Um, and, and why we weren't servicing them was that there was a real disparity in what students could access and when. It was really... Um, unequal across the four faculties or divisions that we had in place in the university. We had again around a thousand um, PhD candidates there and it was just so variable. Um, some faculties were putting on um, credit-bearing courses that candidates could access. Um, some had a whole host of resources that were available online um, but only to their own candidates and um, when we went out and actually unpacked that a bit further so 
I did this work specifically in the preparatory work for a business case to really look at the, the, that cohort and say, and look at their levels of satisfaction. Um, in the UK, there is a survey that's run biennially called the Postgraduate Research Experience Survey, and that really allows us to get under the hood of candidates' experience of their research degree um, during candidature, not after, like the one that's in Australia. Um, so we, we used that, but we also um, went and actually had direct conversations. And really, it was clear that we weren't doing a good job in when it came to the training and skills development of our candidates. At the same time that we were doing this work, there were external factors at play uh, through the government um, Research Councils UK, similar to the ARC here, who really had the majority of the funding for research and for PhD research um, in the UK, they had previously funded quite significantly uh, skills development activities within universities and they decided they were going to withdraw this. So uh, Robert's funding, as some people may be familiar with, had been in place um, since the mid or early 2000s. Um, so we've had this funding for a number of years. Universities have used it in a myriad of ways to do lots of different things, um, from boot camp to uh, week-long retreats uh, focused on entrepreneurial skills, to business plan competitions, to internship programs, to mentoring. There is just a, a whole host of things. But um, that funding was being withdrawn. So when we were looking inside our own walls, we thought we need to make sure that the quality and quantity and options available to our candidates was sufficient. Um, at that point, when we made the decision that something else needed to happen, we looked at the other things in play. So the, the VTI, um, the intermediate body that supports research and development in higher education, uh, and specifically in research um, in the UK, uh, had developed a researcher development framework around about 2010. And most universities had endorsed this as the, the professional development framework to use with researchers. And that framework spans PhD research right the way through the pipeline to um, principal investigator, professorial level researchers. So we had this framework floating about. We didn't really know what to do with it. We had variability in the requirements of training for candidates in terms of credits or no credits, as well as the offerings that were actually available. Um, and we had the funding situation um, being looked at. So all that led to a business case and what we wanted to uh, achieve was a rationalization of training across the university for greater efficiencies. We wanted to enhance quality control and um, rigor, and we wanted to um, have some coherence and clarity and help candidates navigate the credit requirements for the PGR population. So it was a way to actually provide, we wanted a way to provide formal recognition for the over and above training that candidates do so often. Um, we also wanted to recognize the experiential development that candidates have in their research degrees. Um, and we really wanted to improve the student experience for doctoral candidates. We wanted, to, um, we wanted to find a way to embed the researcher development framework and we wanted to attend to the needs of employers. Um, as well. But that was almost a secondary consideration and I don't think in the design we paid uh, a huge amount of attention to that um, in, in, in the pre-work. We, we certainly did in the post-work but on reflection probably a little bit too late. So we had a University of Strathclyde strategy and operational plan for researcher development, which covered um, 2011 to 2015. And in that, we had a KPI that by 2015, at least 80% of our postgraduate researchers and, and indeed early career researchers would be touched by the transferable skills part of the researcher development program that was in place. So to help us achieve that, 
and to tackle all of the other issues that I have just laid out, we decided to develop the, the UK's first parallel award for postgraduate research candidates, uh, specifically PhDs. So other cohorts can participate, but the timeliness of their, the programme does lend itself to the PhD cohort. And what the PGCERT is, is a postgraduate certificate. So it's 60 credits, which ultimately is 600 hours that candidates undertake in parallel to their PhD. It's mapped to the four domains of the research and development framework with, with most weight credit weighting to the research specific domain um, of the RDF. Um, and that was really in response to a huge uh, consultation with our academic community, including the PhD cohort themselves. So that, in a nutshell, is, is what the PGCERT is. And uh, we had a fully integrated system that linked with reviews of progress. Um, it was compulsory, it is compulsory um, for all candidates. And it recognises and actually um, incentivises the experiential learning, like publishing, applying for grants uh, during candidature, conference attendance and internships within it. And that allowed us to kind of leverage the PGCERT to do more innovative things in how we actually deliver the training um, and how we can partner um, with external organisations um, in delivery of our research and development programme. Mm. Oh, it's very, very good. Um, I've spoken to you at length over the last couple of years about your program. And I do think that the capacity you had in that to actually recognise what people were already doing is one of the things that's particularly attractive, I think, to some of the participants because it can be viewed as, oh, it's something else that I have to do. And that's not really been the case from what I understand from, from your program. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I think what was important was the individualised nature of it. It's a, almost a design your own journey kind of structure. You don't, there's no compulsory training whilst the PGCER and enrolment in that award is compulsory. The nothing within it was required. So we made sure that there were enough options and opportunity for candidates to really design their own training pathway in that. You talked about how you know you hadn't really probably looked at the employer needs prior and look having worked in career development and, and career services you know there is a, a danger of focusing too much on that but of course I think it is really important to consider the need so it's that balancing act again. Of course, you then did really understand that that was an important aspect and you then went on to do your MBA, focused on employers' perceptions of PhD level skills. Could you talk about that experience and your discoveries? Of course. Um, so the MBA was an interesting decision for me. I was at a juncture in life where I was considering my own professional development and practicing what I preached. And I was looking at into doing a PhD or, or the merits of having a, a, an MBA from my own kind of career um, aspirations and goals, um, but also my interest. Now, what was a, attractive about the University of Strathclyde MBA is it that it offers a project um, elective. It, it's actually a compulsive part of the MBA, mm. which isn't the case for many MBA programmes around the world. I actually felt, well, this gives me the best of both worlds. I'd done a very light touch thesis in my honours degree, but that had been, you know, 10 years previously, and I, I definitely needed a refresh on those research skills. So I thought, let's test the water, but also do some valuable coursework in the process. So I, I enrolled in this in 2013, and when it came to 2016, I was finally ready after many, many torturous electives in things like finance and uh, statistical analysis that uh, were certainly a challenge. I got to the project and you're right, I, I've called out the missing, the missing piece, which was understanding employers' needs. But what I actually felt was missing from the literature at that point was understanding what employers think about PhD graduates. What makes them employ people? What's the differentiator? 
when it comes to recruitment, their recruitment of talent. So when it came to selecting my topic, it was pretty easy. I linked it with my role. At that point, I was the researcher development manager and I was able to do this, went under the hood with employers on their views and thoughts of doctoral graduates. So I did this through a mixed uh, method study and I went and spoke to a reasonable sample size, 17, across a range of sectors, including public admin, research and development, uh, manufacturing, finance, business, IT, legal and others, um, including academia, because that, of course, is real world for our uh, PhD graduates went and did um, some qualitative and quantitative research with those volunteers. And what I found really resonates with what came out um, later, around about the same time actually, what was happening was the Ecola review and, uh, and unbeknownst to me they were looking at pretty much exactly the same thing in Australia. But what I found in that study was that the top five factors that were influencing employers during recruitment, number one was a surprise to me. You know, I designed this study so that it, that it was coming from the employers. There were no biases at play and they didn't really know much about my own background and where I, where I was working in the studies. But this came out very clearly. Transferable skills was the number one factor that they considered important during recruitment followed by the ability to articulate these skills in a way that really convinced the employer that that person could do the job with the right skill set. Number three was actually work experience. So I, I would have expected, my hypothesis would, was that this would be hacked further up the chain. Um, then role-related skills. So there was less of a need to have direct skills and experience um, employers reflected back. And this wasn't true of academia, uh, in academia, actually. That was more important for the academic um, interviewees that I had. But that was less important comparative to the more generalist skills that they were looking for. And then number five was academic qualifications. So what they were saying to me was, look, what having a PhD demonstrates is that credibility is a level of intelligence. Is There's an understanding there that PhD graduates are going to be able to work with uh, large data sets to critically analyze um, these, to synthesize information and to have an exceptional attention to detail. That went hand in hand with the PhD qualification. But outside of academia, it actually was irrelevant a lot of the time what the actual topic is unless the employer is actually recruiting you because of your PhD research project which obviously does happen and then when I looked into that those transferable skills a bit more and asked okay so what are the most important skills to you this really um, went well with what Acola reported on uh, they were communication at, in at number one followed by cognitive abilities Number three was working with others. Uh, number four was self-management. And number five was creativity and innovative thinking within that. And of course, these many of these are linked with what leadership really looks like. And that's essentially what employers were looking for. That was where I landed uh, with the thesis. The only other interesting point um, to make was that there were significant differences on levels of understanding um, of PhD graduates between those who had a PhD themselves, of which half formulated the study, versus those that didn't. You know, people with a, a first-hand insight really got that this that the PhD develops transferable skills, but those that didn't weren't aware of that and actually had quite a different view of what PhD graduates could look like in terms of the characteristics. Yeah, which shows we have a lot of work to do there because we can't have mm. an employer go out and do a PhD so that they can understand it. So we need to find other ways. We have to find creative ways of, of getting that there. And that's where, you know, the work that you're doing and my colleague Catherine Ennis is with IMNIS and with APR Intern, you know, in Western Australia, they have IPREP. There's other programs like that where you mentioned about the experience. Certainly another thing I hear is the understanding 
understanding of how business works. Once you get those PhDs out there, they really help the uh, employer to understand the value of someone with a PhD. That's exactly right. Um, I couldn't agree more, Sally. I think APR intern and initiatives like it, such as MNIST um, or IPREP, are doing a fantastic job of actually getting our PhD candidates out into industry, out into end-user organisations and allowing the employers to see firsthand for themselves the high-level skill sets and advanced capabilities that our graduates bring to the employment market. Without that, we have a big job to do. What we're we're kind of attacking this in in a myriad of ways. That's my favourite word this podcast is actually, Sally myriads um i've just realized i've used it quite a lot of times it's a good word it's a good word but i absolutely think that there's opportunity for us as universities to be looking at that from the perspective of how we upskill candidates and being able to articulate themselves and their own professional development and what they can bring in terms of their skill set for better and greater employability as well as involving employers and finding creative ways to to get our end users engaged in PhD research. One of the things we've done at the University of South Australia is introduce panel supervision where end users of research are part of that panel. And so they're actually, they're there, they're, they're in it, and they're seeing exactly what the research looks like and the skills that are developed as a result of that. And I think that's a really great way to expose our employers, likewise our candidates, to potential employment opportunities, whether it be through a direct route from the end user or whether it's just by practicing that articulation piece right the way throughout their their candidature. I think it's just so important that we look at this seriously and make sure that employers' perceptions of doctoral level skills are what they should be. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think to invite employers to the 3MT, you know, that really is quite an extraordinary experience to listen to the PhD articulating their research and you get to see all these qualities that they possess as well as their actual research skills. It, it, that's a fantastic idea. Actually something that last year we, we implemented, we opened the doors, um, not just to uh, industry, but actually to the public. Because of course the public are our industry, they are our employers and our users of research and we also live streamed it on Facebook and from memory it was the most watched live stream that we've had at the university that year so fantastic to see that level of engagement. DMT by its very nature is very engaging as an initiative as well as a great skills development opportunity for our candidates but looking at other opportunities through that lens of how do we get partners and users engaged in this could they have a role? Could we co-develop and co-create initiatives or at least showcase better our PhD candidates' outputs and abilities um, during their research? Exactly. I feel, clear that you're in an ideal position to compare the different approaches to research and development for PhDs in the UK and Australia. So what are the main differences that you've noticed having been here for a couple of years now? I think there are a lot of parallels to draw and a lot of similarities. What I think has been nailed in Australia is really the importance of quality in researcher development. And that's something that I think can be variable across the water for a number of reasons. And what I would deflect in short is really the major difference, which is the funding landscape. And that really does connect to why there is a greater volume and diversity of activities in the UK and the man or woman power to support it. But what that's done and having had so much money and resource to support research development in the UK, we were at hundreds of millions by the end of the Roberts agenda. And what that's done is create a bit of variability and quality. And I do think now that what universities are contending with is really rationalising and ensuring that activities are evaluated effectively and really understanding the impact of what they are doing. The Roberts initiative didn't set a baseline for which they were coming from. I think Australia's done that 
albeit a bit later down the line. And that links to my comment around timeliness. I think, you know, there's a perception that Australia are, are behind, significantly behind in their developments in graduate research. And, you know, I know colleagues that have attended uh, conferences in the UK in the last couple of months, and those always showcase best practice or good practice in, in the, in the programme. And the reflections have been actually not so much think we have a fantastic approach to reporting, ensuring good data around our research degrees so we know who our candidates are, their routes into the PhD, and we're getting a lot better on outcomes of graduate destinations. You know, only last week did uh, Griffith University publish the results from their ReConnect project which looked at the destinations of their graduating candidates over a specific time frame. They had a fantastic result. I think around 40% of all graduates they managed to get data on. And they've presented this in a, a really neat interactive dashboard that you can kind of play with and look at the data there. I think the picture is broadly the same. We know that the majority of our graduates go out into careers outside of academia. A significant proportion would remain linked to research, if not directly in a research organisation or a university. We are getting to the point where we're getting a really good picture of, of where our graduates go and I just think that's of the utmost importance. What we do well in Australia as well because we're working from a low resource base is that we, we pull limited, our limited resources and we collaborate in South Australia quite easy because we're within a 10 kilometre radius of all the other universities here and we work together. We deliver events that supplement the MNIST programme, looking at how to be effective as a mentee in the MNIST programme, for example. And we also manage um, and deliver a longitudinal study looking at the impact of MNIST in terms of skills and knowledge development and what difference it really makes so that candidates can make an informed decision about whether they actually want to participate, but also the university can make a, a, a better decision about whether to invest in this programme versus another one. So I think we, we do really um, collaborate well. The area that I think might be missing, which the, which the UK are leaps and bounds ahead on, is public engagement. Obviously have things like the 3MT, which of course is a great initiative to support public engagement. There's a specific body in the UK, the National Coordinating Centre for Public Engagement, which supported for a number of years now a major culture change in the UK higher education sector. And research has been at the forefront of that, particularly PhD research. And there's a huge amount being done with schools in particular. And I do see variability across institutions in how much is dedicated um, to putting a focus on, on schools engagement in education. You know, that's a bit of a, a hodgepodge overview of the differences. Um, overall, I think we're both trying really hard and I think we put a lot of focus and energy into ensuring excellence in research degrees. You know, they're very interesting points and I think public engagement's a really good one that I probably hadn't thought about as much. Certainly I see a lot of individual PhDs with some excellent uh, engagement and they really build their reputation and their impact you know they're doing that by themselves could be within the faculty they supported that way but certainly I think there needs to be more of a concerted approach and nationally as well. That's exactly right and I think looking beyond STEM as the focus for that is something that we should consider because there's a lot of public engagement opportunity in subject linked with creative art or of course marketing um, and engineering um, some of the more niche engineering related subjects like architecture. A huge amount of interest in that and uh, public engagement and I think we could do a better job in servicing that aspect of doing a PhD. Of course you've talked about your experience across the in UK and in Australia and you have this passion as I share with you about career planning for HDR candidates. What do you think is the best approach to take in relation to career development for PhD? Best approach? Well I, I think my advice would really be centred around four things um, and it has to be individualized and so please listen to this in the context of 
this is not a paint by numbers and step by step. It has to be personalised and in the context of the own of the individual's own research project and circumstances and characteristics. Generally and broadly, from the work that I've done, developing and delivering clear, career development workshops and having worked directly on one to one kind of career mentoring with PhD candidates. I think what's always fed back to me and what's been helpful is to start early in candidature. Many candidates, especially those who might regard themselves as mature, might not feel the need for career development. But career development isn't just for the you know mid-20s, just fresh out of an honours degree candidate that hasn't had a career previously outside of maybe working at McDonald's. Um, it's really about keeping your skill set fresh and modernise. It's about being aware of job market trends and the things that are being highly sought after in your sector so that you remain relevant and competitive for the job market because it is competitive out there, especially at the side of the world. And we're not able to jump countries as easily, although we may not be able to jump countries as easily uh, over in the UK either shortly, but that's a topic for another podcast um but you know you do need to to be aware that for every job that's out there you're competing against 50 100 150 plus other excellent potentially individuals so maintaining up-to-date skill set um is really 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 important and that's regardless of whether you have a career in play and your junior PhD alongside your job or as part of your job. Career development is important for all professionals, irrespective of stage of career. And I certainly practice what I preach with, with this one. So start early, arm yourself with the knowledge now. And the second piece of advice is use the tools that are provided either by your university or that are out there through other professional organisations linked with your sector or just general career development books or resources that are out there. At the uni, at UniSA, um, we've just introduced a number of career development tools to help candidates plan and navigate and undertake their skills development experience with an aim to help them keep an up-to-date set of what we've called career assets. So it goes beyond just the bog standard CV. We want candidates to look at having a number of CVs that they might tailor for different um, sectors or uh, having an academic CV as well as a non-academic CV, even having an awareness of what the difference between those two should be. The the cover letter, you know, having a template for that that calls out your, your big wins and your USP, uh, your unique selling point. Knowing your unique selling point and crunching that out so that you have a really neat way of articulating what you could bring to a role in the future and of course you know being aware that the stuff that you need to describe yourself for career assets are the things that you may need to use for grant applications or fellowship applications so if you do use the tools that are available to you through your university through your career services or through your professional body then you're actually you know it's going to help you with your research focused activities as well um, the third thing would be very simple, keep yourself accountable. So you need to keep yourself accountable in your actual research. Discipline is the route to change. Uh, I firmly believe that. And I think making sure that this isn't just something that you do tomorrow, next week, next month, next year is really important. So carving out dedicated time where you take a moment and check in with your, your career development, whether that be, is your training up to date? Do you have a bit of capacity to do some specific skills training? What would that be? Have you done a skills self-assessment? Depending, we've just introduced a tool to help candidates do that um, at UniSA to understand the skills that they need for both their research and going on into the future of whatever their career may be. And I think a way to help keep yourself accountable is to, to really focus on your network. I often find personally it difficult to take that time out for some career development action unless I've got a specific kind of reason, unless I activate it 
through something. And often my activation comes from my network. So Sally, you and I might have a conversation. We often do every couple of months to check in on our various initiatives and and activities um, in our roles, which are very similar. And you might suggest to me that that you've done this really um, great online course on uh, the role of mindfulness in career management. And so that is the catalyst for me to take that time out and really ring fence the time because my network has enabled that. They've given me some advice. I've looked into it. It linked to my work. It would be really helpful perhaps for a specific activity that I've got coming up in a couple of months and I make the time for it. So networks are really important in that sense and not just your uh, you know networks that are outside of the university. Networks within the university um, are key to that and your peers so I I know of very well and it's been very inspiring the HDR mentors program at Macquarie it's a peer-to-peer mentoring uh, system that you have in place very well supported by um, resources and uh, events and training opportunities that candidates can get involved in I think that's also a fantastic way to learn from each other and maybe take some time out to do a bit of Um, buddied up career development activities and of course that will help keep you accountable so start early use the tools that are there to help you keep yourself accountable and work on your networks make time for your networks we just had a conversation in advance of this call didn't we Sally where I was kind of reflecting on the busyness as we do and my commitment to maintaining the the commitment that I've made to networking this week um, which involves a couple of coffee meetings um, with people who are research and development trainers um, and things like this podcast, which is good for my own skills development, of course. So I am definitely not just spouting these words without doing the do myself. And that comes from, you know, really connecting with candidates and trying to understand what is helpful to them in their own career development activities. I don't know if I've missed anything, Sally, that you would think well, is critical. Well, my my bit that I would add would be understanding your own interests and strengths and values, what lights your fire, because certainly we've talked a lot about that, Claire, and be accountable, be accountable to yourself. Is this really right for me? Is this really what I need? Is this really what my family needs? Is this where I physically want to be? There's a whole range of things to ask yourself to make sure that you're not following a path that seems sensible or the right thing, or this is what other people expect. Those things can come into it, but of course it has to really also resonate because that's when we're most fulfilled, rewarded, and actually can have the greatest impact in the world, I believe, is if we're doing something that really fits with who we are as a person. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. I think that's really important to look at your own identity, your own interests, and how you want to prioritise that in the context of your of your whole life and the elements within that including your your well-being your relationships your interests outside of your career and your research um, and your your spirituality your your mental health as well you touched on this earlier and and it's something that's quite close to my heart i know that you're always learning from other people what do you feel that universities could learn from their phd cohort what can we not learn from our phd cohort i think is the question here Sally no but seriously I think my view um, as a structural development professional is that really the candidate's voice needs to be front and centre in all HDR activities we need to have real authentic representation in our decision making bodies and we need to engage actively in real time I think we should be understanding what works and what doesn't to support PhD research and be able to respond to that I mean I I didn't mention this in the frustrations question but things can take a long time in universities there can be a lot of hoops to jump through or red tape whatever analogy you want to go with but we need to be responsive because it's so important and critical to the candidates experience that they see real change happening during the course of their three four years with us if they're full time and we do need to ensure I think authenticity is is just really critical because you can pay lip service to engagement quite easily by saying oh yeah we engaged and actually they engage with you know a couple of candidates that don't cover the diversity 
or um, heterogeneity of the population. And they're saying that that's the student voice has been heard. So I think, yeah, we need to know, we need to get feedback, but we also need to know where our graduates are at beyond. When they leave us, we need to keep connected. And my interest is really in having more intelligence on what creates impact in research or development through evidence-based data. Um, I think this would really allow universities to understand how to de best to deploy resources more effectively, but more importantly, how to help candidates design the most optimal PhD experience for the greatest reward. So if, the, if we know, if we have the data that candidates are more, have a better experience, have greater job prospects and have a whole host of, of opportunities um, appear at their door because they, they, they attended a higher number of conferences. We should know that. We should know what success looks like for our PhD in the terms of the discipline area. And um, I'm really interested in just maintaining and enhancing the student voice in everything we do in research or development. Of course, that is the challenge that we face. And I think when we're doing the do, it's very easy to be tied to your desk um, and making assumptions there. So I think we need we need to be accountable as research or development professionals to call that behaviour out and make sure that we're considering the student voice and indeed those connected to students like supervisors um, in everything that we're doing in the space. So really what you're saying is we need to take a research approach to research and development. That is what I'm saying, Sally. Absolutely. And every opportunity I can when there's capacity, that's exactly what we do. Yeah, that's great. And look, the other thing that I would add that I think personally that we can learn is, of course, we, a lot of these people we're getting in have a wealth of experience themselves. To me, that's a real untapped resource there. Like, as you mentioned, the HDR mentors, which is excellent, and there's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer sharing there. But there could be so much more of that where we actually have people with already have expertise, have been out working in their own sector and have come and done a PhD. We can learn more from them once they go and they can inform us. But, of course, we can learn a lot from them through peer sharing and to mm. greater university by hearing from our current PhDs who do have all this wealth of experience to share with us. That's right. And I, and I actually think that we need to showcase researcher development as a profession to PhDs more explicitly because it, it's a funny old area when you look at the people working in this space as majority do have a PhD themselves and we know that but it, again it's been an accidental not intended um, career landing has happened not through choice but just the opportunity um, and I think that, that it's a great career destination for PhDs who have the skill set and all of them do um, to make a difference and they also have the knowledge and um, the first-hand knowledge which I think is just so important. Claire is there anything else that you wanted to add today? Do you know Sally I think we've had a pretty robust conversation and uh, a cup of tea is calling but <laughs> I, I've really thoroughly enjoyed um, having this discussion with you and thanks for the opportunity.